Well, good morning. I do want to thank you guys for allowing our family to come here and be a part of your family. Uh, the boys, they told my wife that they don't want to leave. And so I think that's a, a testament to how you've treated us like family. And uh, for the last few days, we've got to spend time with your pastors and elders and their wives and their families as well. And, and they've been ministering to us uh, every day and uh, how, how we long for them to minister to us. We get it in spurts. You guys obviously get it every day. They're praying for you and, and giving themselves to you. And, and secretly and honestly, I'm, I've been trying to steal them from you guys and bring them to Hawaii, but they love you guys too much, and they don't love me as much. So, <laughs> uh, There are a lot of churches in Hawaii, our church included, that would love to have just one of your elders, and you guys have four uh, elders like this with their amazing families, and so you guys are very blessed. Don't rob God of praise and thanksgiving for that, and don't do any kind of wicked thing like not appreciating them and making it a joy in your submission to them as they watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And so you guys have been blessed beyond, um, beyond many other churches. And for our final session of retreat, I want to invite you to take out your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 16 is our passage this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. And before we look at the text, why don't we pray together? Father, we, uh, we confess that our greatest joy ultimately is found in the knowledge of you and the one whom you've sent. And we admit that this joy does not mean an absence of trial or suffering, but that's how we know the power of the resurrection, through these things that we might press into you even more. Use this time, God, to sow your word. And by your grace and mercy, may we bear 30, 60, and 100 fold like we've heard this morning. We ask these things for your glory and for our own good, for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul's desire, his life's present, his current aim, his highest ambition is to know Jesus Christ to gain Jesus Christ. And every other previous pursuit of his life is rubbish by comparison. His career, his education, his financial status, his reputation, which took years and years to build up, his former relationships, his family's heritage, all of it rubbish by comparison because there is a surpassing worth to knowing the Lord. It makes every other kind of achievement and status and relationship look worthless. That's what the text before us has stated. And so Paul wants more of Jesus Christ. And he writes that after being a Christian for over 30 years. His supreme aim still is to know Jesus. He writes that as a seasoned believer, a missionary, 
an evangelist, a planter of several churches. He has endured persecution and imprisonment for Christ. Paul already has Jesus Christ. He's a Christian. And his singular passion is still to continue to press into a more. And with all of his effort to win him, to know him, very practically in real life, change my life, God, more and more. Let me know the power of your resurrection. Let me share in the fellowship of your sufferings. Let me endure those things. Even becoming like Christ in death. He doesn't say that lightly. He might get executed. But even to press on beyond that towards the resurrection from the dead. Every aspect of Jesus Christ, Paul wants to know and not just intellectually up here. And if it hasn't been clear up to this point in this letter to the Philippian church, Jesus Christ means everything to Paul. To have him, to be like him, to know him, to see him like we've sung face to face and on that day to stand before his God, complete and made perfect in him. Now that's an intimidating passage, I think. To kind of stand next to this spiritual giant. To look him into the eyes to see into his heart through these very intimate words. You sound like the perfect Christian, Paul. We can feel so far behind you. I know that I do. And in this context, there were other movements out there and other leaders who would talk real big and toot their own horn to get a gathering for themselves and talk about how far they've come and how mature they were. Almost perfection. They love to stand tall on their own two feet. We've made it. We're the gurus. That's not what Paul's trying to do. What Paul is actually, that's what Paul is actually against. And we read in verse 12 of chapter 3, he writes this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is Paul's humble confession here. He hasn't arrived yet. He's still in the process of getting there. And the reason why he wants to make Jesus Christ more and more of his own is only because Jesus Christ has first made Paul his own. There's an order there. Paul presses on to make these gospel realities his because Christ Jesus firstly has made Paul his. Christ grabs us before we grab for him. He lays hold of us before we ever lay hold of him. Again, we love him because he first loved us. This has to bring us to a state of humility, not pride, brothers and sisters. Spiritual pride is utterly inconsistent with the gospel. We are who we are because Christ moved first. You know, sometimes we can lament and complain about the unbelieving world around us. I can't believe all that's going on. You know, my coworker said this, my neighbor, blah, 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 blah. I wouldn't do that. And we can complain about the unbelievers around us and how they think and how they act. But we must never forget, Christians, that the only difference between a believer and an unbeliever is the undeserved, unearned, unmerited grace of God. And we haven't arrived. And the only difference between the one who is saved and the one who is not saved is because of a primary act of the Lord and not ourselves. You know, sometimes we can talk like we were the ones who sought after God. 
And how come these unbelievers don't? Like we somehow figured it all out. Like we had something within ourselves that approached him first and he reacted to us because we're the ones who took the initiative. And it's a good thing we did so God could respond. Nothing could be further from biblical truth. The initiative in salvation always finds its source in the Lord himself prior to us. And so before any of us could ever seek after God, or continue to seek after God, God first sought after us. You know, the pastors, he shared this at our staff meeting a few weeks ago. A.W. Tozer says, We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. No man can come to me, said our Lord, except the Father which hath sent me draw him. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. But the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. And all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. Thy right hand upholdeth me. In all our seeking of God, God's always previous. We pursue in a a kind of reciprocation. And therefore, we don't take pride in how much we love the Lord or in how much we desire to know him. We can't get arrogant about any of it. We only seek because he sought us. In Paul's life, we've, we've looked at his testimony, proves it. Is there anyone in the world that was less of a seeker than Paul? Anyone running further and faster away from Jesus? He hated Jesus Christ so much that he wanted to kill people who liked Jesus. I hate you because you love him. He wanted to eradicate Christianity off the face of the planet. He was a proud religious man, self-accomplishment, self-righteousness, self-centered, self-made, which are the things that would bar a person from the gospel. There was no initiative within his heart to seek after Christ. And yet the love of God sought after Paul, even when Paul wasn't seeking after him. Even when Paul was trying to kill Jesus, everything Jesus, the love of God endured his blasphemies, pushed through all of his violent acts, and so gripped Paul, stopping him in his tracks, turning him around, and as Jesus Christ revealed himself to him, awaking him from his deadness, he freed him to eternal life. Paul would know, even as he would remember that first martyr Stephen, getting pelted with large stones to his bloody death as as Paul nodded his head in hearty approval. Paul knows God's love for me never let up. He never ceased to seek me. It wasn't me who chased God, but it was God's strong hands which first gripped me. And God has always been seeking me. The initiative was with the Lord. The first steps and all the steps were always his. It's the same with us, brothers and sisters. Every Christian in the world has been laid hold of first by a very personal action of Jesus Christ for his beloved. Salvation is of the Lord. He's a primary seeker. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, we seek only because he first sought us. We love because he first loved us. 
We desire to know him more and more because he's the one who saves and continues to save us. That order's key if you want to have joy. We want to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, not to earn acceptance with God, but because we're already accepted by God in him. We want to mature in the faith, not so that Christ will embrace us, but because he already has embraced us. And if you're here this morning, you don't understand the gospel. That's good news. This is so key. Christianity is not do this and obey this and follow this and keep these rules, and then you can be saved. If you perform religiously, clean up a little bit, and appease this God, if you do it well, do it well enough, he may let you into heaven. That's not good news. That would be horrible news. Because not a single one of us can perform to God's perfect standard. But the gospel is this. That even though we've each turned away from our God, our creator, our Lord, running away from him, rebelling against him, making our little selves the center of everything, worshiping this, really, for all practical purposes, that God in his amazing grace and mercy sends Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he sends God himself to live the life that none of us have ever lived, to die the death that we all deserve. And on that cross to absorb the just and righteous wrath of God against sin, which is due to each of us. And the believer is one who admits and confesses, I can't make myself right with God. I can't save myself. I must be saved by someone else. And we put our trust in Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. It's a trust. It's a turning away from our previous life of turning from God. That's called repentance. And then we get God to know him and to experience his love for us in an ever-increasing way. And as Jesus Christ was raised from death to life, so we too are raised from spiritual death to eternal life. To know him and the believer, the genuine Christian wants to know his Savior, wants to gain this God practically to press into him more and more, not to earn, but to have the one who has so loved us when we have given him no reason to love us. And so there's no intimidation when we look at other Christians like Paul who have progressed so far because this isn't a competition with each other. In fact, there's encouragement because even a saint like Paul, this evangelist, spiritual giant, church-planting missionary who God writes so much of the New Testament through, there's an encouragement because if he has pursued Jesus Christ that much and has still not found an end, it gives us hope. You know, years ago, I went to Whistler Mountain in Canada. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a huge mountain. There's all these lifts, and then there's this gondola that goes further than the rest of the lifts. And you get on one, and then you get on the next one, and then you get on the next one. And as I'm looking out the window, looking forward, and I'm thinking, man, this has got to be the top of the mountain. And then you're at this flat area, and there's another lift. So I look behind to see how far 
We've come and we've come pretty far. Get on the next lift and the next lift and then it tapers off into another area. I'm like, this has to be the top, but there's another lift right there. I think this has to be the last one. This mountain can't get any higher than this. Can't get any bigger than this cannon. And then that lift, I can't see much higher because of the angle, but there's another lift. Another one. I can't see where I started. I can't see halfway down. It's getting colder and higher. The wind's in my face. This is the biggest mountain I've ever been on. It never seems to end. So weak analogy to our God in a sense. You know, rather than discourage us by looking at a spiritual giant of a man in comparison to where we are, Paul is Paul's at this spiritual peak. He's in prison for Christ. He's been tortured for the gospel, proclaiming with all his might to live as Christ, to die as gain. He speaks of joy 15 times in this letter, moving the chains on his wrist. He's chained to a guard. He might get executed. Rather than being intimidated by the spiritual giant of a man in Paul, he's just several peaks ahead of us, several lifts higher, and he's yelling behind him towards us, I haven't even gotten to the top yet. There's no end to this mountain. I can't even see its apex. I can't see the top. I haven't arrived. I haven't obtained all of who God is for me in Christ Jesus. It makes you want to go higher and higher. He's not even close to the top. He hasn't made it. And yet, look at the air up there. It makes the genuine Christian want to pursue Jesus Christ more. It's not a competition. And that's not what the other so-called spiritual leaders were like. Oftentimes, the leader views himself or herself as kind of a guru. Be like me, look at what I do and all the discipline that I have. Eat like me, talk like me, wake up at the same time as me, read like me, act like me. They're a growing group of people who claim this kind of spiritual perfectionism or very close to it. Brothers and sisters, if any believer in this room thinks that they have arrived or are close to it or that they're some kind of expert in the faith, the mold. You know, usually these are the people who can't be transparent. They're reluctant to let people know the real them because it might expose them. Sometimes they're the super defensive ones because they spend their lives trying to be this perfect person and this facade to people who can see through it anyway. Beware of that kind of so-called Christianity, whitewashed and unable to deal with real issues. It's a tiny molehill of a mountain, a little bump of self-exaltation that cannot and will not bring people to see the Lord for all that he is. Verse 13, we continue. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is very affectionate here. Brothers, I'm not all the way there. But what is involved in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, it involves forgetting the past 
and straining forward to the future. The picture here is of a runner pumping his arms. His eyes are on the prize, the goal, the finish line. He's not concerned with how far he's run already, only how much he has left, undistracted by the runners around him because this athlete is singularly focused on that finish line. The Christian race, the Christian life involves a lot of forgetting. Now, this doesn't mean we try and erase things from our memory, but this is a refusal to let them have a hold upon us and to weigh us down in that sense from moving forward. A former sin, a previous uh, wicked life of unbelief. Maybe it's besetting sin that's caught up to us recently. These things can stumble us. In my own testimony, I had, I had lots of problems with anger. Still rears its head now and then. I've done wicked things in anger, hatred. Many people didn't like me. Pastor Eric, he didn't like me when he first met me. He wanted to beat me up. <laughs> he did. You can ask him about that. Pornography. Pornography had a grip on me. Arrogance, shadiness, pride, shadiness. I cheated a lot in school. I was shady. Went to places I shouldn't have gone to. Some of those things, they can call out with their voice, beckon me to return. Remember our history together? How intertwined we once were? Why don't you come back? It's so easy to come back. We have to leave those kinds of things behind. Not dwell in that filth or be bound by our failures. Don't even turn your head to look at them. You'll be tempted to. It's easy to fall back. The only kind of remembering of those things that is beneficial is the kind that drives us forward in our pursuit of Jesus Christ. Thank you for delivering me, God. And please continue to do it. You know, previous events, one of the things that I can be prone to doing is to recount my own past and all the ways I've been wronged. It's a pride of self-pity. We each have this inner lawyer, Paul Tripp calls it, an inner lawyer. I can victimize myself and twist the details and make a strong case for how the world's against me. The more I replay the highlights, the more they're bent towards my favor and everyone else's not favor. That doesn't make us run to Jesus Christ. It makes us sit down and sulk obsessively. It makes us unforgiving. Makes us unable to move forward. Bitterness grows. Grudges happen. Disappointments can destroy our spiritual progress. Yeah, forget those things. Forgive those things. Even a history of good things. Sometimes we can have the smug kind of self-satisfaction and complacency. I've been on X amount of missions trips back in my heyday. Get every Awana award on my little vest. I used to be really, really involved in youth group. Before I had kids, maybe, I served the church a lot. Remember that little old lady I walked across the street? And we can sit down and relive the glory years. Remember, remember, remember. We can't keep looking back if the call is to move forward. And there's always a subtle temptation that comes to believers after a while. Maybe it's a kind of spiritual midlife crisis. And we... We know things. We've come to a point and we're kind of 
all right being at that point. And we do our best not to commit any fatal, crazy sin. Maybe we're not perfect, but we're better than most. And that's it for us. You know, one of the greatest signs of real Christian maturity is the ability to forget the past, what's behind us, and continue to move forward with the whole of our hearts. I don't know how many people I run into that talk about the good old days when they used to be into Jesus way back when and think that that kind of past history with them is going to prove a real relationship to them right now. The past doesn't define us, brothers and sisters. The question is, are we straining forward, exerting every muscle, pumping those arms, intense desire, utmost effort towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Are we climbing to those peaks of glory? And when Paul writes these things, you know what his previous sin is? He used to get Christians killed. You know, you read about the Coptic Christians in Egypt getting murdered by religious extremists. You read about that? Paul was a religious extremist who wanted the Christians to pay. That's in his history. That history could have bound him up. God can't forgive me. But the only reference to his past is to highlight all that Christ has done for him by way of worship. And so remembering those things only propel him forward. Even as a believer, he could sit down and victimize himself. And I try my best, left job and career to be a missionary. I'm trying to be as faithful as I can. I keep ending up in jail. All I want to do is glorify God, but I got all these scars on my broken body because I love Jesus Christ. Woe is me. He doesn't do that. Instead, he's singing and praying in the stocks, writing letters to churches while he sits in jail to encourage them. If anyone could dwell in self-congratulations and past triumphs, wouldn't it be Paul? I'm writing to a church that I founded, among many others. No gospel in Europe till I arrived. Gentile missionary supreme. Now, so many believers look to him as kind of a spiritual father. If anyone had a case for rest, relaxation, a case from early retirement for ministry, a case for early retirement for Christianity. Who else had a stronger case than the Apostle Paul? No, he writes, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, your past failures don't define you. His mercies are new every morning. Remember that. In your previous sin, let that strengthen your concentration in the course and your humility in this life. Don't rest in past victories. Be thankful for them and move forward. I don't think any of us have had a more wicked past than Paul. I don't think any of us in this room has, has a more glorified spiritual resume. And I don't think anyone in this room has attained the spiritual maturity of this great apostle. And so if he continues to strain every muscle to push forward, how much more should we? We must never be satisfied with partial attainment, brothers and sisters. Complacent. We must never get entrapped by former things. We must never be smugly content with where we are, where we cease to grow. That kind of complacency is utterly wicked because it says of God, that's all I need to know of you. 
and it needs to be repented of. Every Christian has been called by God in Christ upward, and none of us in this room are finished with this race. John Piper, on his exposition of this text, says this about a holy dissatisfaction. He says, what I'm talking about is a restless dissatisfaction with the current state of our walk with God that does not lead us into grumbling or coveting. Paul's pursuit of Christ rises out of a profound dissatisfaction with the way he is. Could it be that there is a connection between how little earnest pursuit of God there is today in the church and how much we are told to think well of ourselves? The first step in going hard after the holy God, then, is to develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life. Stand in front of the mirror of the word and recognize that you have not yet arrived. Objection. Piper, you are utterly out of touch with real people. People do not need a negative appeal to think more about their guilt. The malaise of American culture inside and outside the church is an epidemic of guilt and bad feelings about ourselves. Don't tell people what they need is to develop more dissatisfaction about themselves. Do you really think the people in your congregation like themselves? No, I don't. But I think real humbling guilt is extraordinarily rare. I think 99% of our bad feelings about ourselves is rooted in pride. For example, suppose you go to a dinner party and find out when you get there you're dressed wrong. And then you spill your coffee. And then you don't know which fork to pick up first. And then the joke you attempt falls flat. And when you're leaving, you call your hostess by the wrong name. How do you feel about yourself when you get home? Ryan. You hate yourself. You're depressed. You don't want to show your face. You feel like quitting your job. What's the use when you're such a klutz? Now I ask, where does all that low self-image come from? Whence all these depressing, immobilizing, self-denouncing feelings is the answer, God's offended glory or your offended pride? People who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has injured the glory of God are very, very rare. But people who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has prevented them from having a reputation of being cool and competent are very, very common. When I plead with you to develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life, I'm asking for something rare, not common. I'm not asking you to feel worse about your inability to appear cool and intelligent I'm asking you to feel worse that you possess so little of Jesus Christ. It's spiritual complacency which cuts the nerve of progress and stifles the hope of the finish line. The one thing I do, the text says. Brothers and sisters, if there is one thing, only one thing that defines any of us, may not be career or parenting style or how the kids turn out or finding the perfect spouse or your finances or what your body looks like or your personality. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, we continue. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You know, Paul's kind of Christianity, this humble, haven't arrived, but fiercely pursuing Jesus Christ kind of Christianity is not unique, nor is it expected only of apostles. But all who are mature should think this way and take a view on these things, and anyone who wants to be mature in Christ should think this way as well. Have the same kind of Christ-centered ambition where spiritual progress with an all-out muscle-straining effort is the imperative that we each must follow. You know, Paul knows here that people will have an issue with what he's saying and writing. Not everyone's going to agree with him. It's the same today, I think. Many people either look at the gospel, the good news, that God saves, he takes the initiative, his hands never let us go, salvation's secure because it rests primarily upon him, and then they'll misinterpret that truth and think, well then, I'm going to go do whatever I want. Let go and let God kind of attitude. I got permission to do that, permission to relax a little bit because I'm saved. And then exert little to no effort in their pursuit of Jesus Christ. Or they're going to look at Paul's effort and they're going to continue in a sort of self-discipline and put in place strict rules and regulations. Read this, do this regimen, don't watch TV, join this group, look at all of those who don't do what I do, and then they feel like they've arrived. In a sort of smug, arrogant, self-exaltation. Follow me, emphasis, as I follow Christ, de-emphasis. A kind of spiritual superiority. Both kinds of people have lost the gospel. Those who put a hearty effort and look down upon those less than them or those who revel in their imperfections and only want to rest in God's forgiveness and point out the error of effort. We have to have twin convictions if we want to know the Lord in any joyous kind of way. We have not arrived at the point of an arrogant rest and we must be ever reaching for the highest peaks of knowing our God. You know, Paul's in chains He's trying to figure out, am I going to live or die? Parts of the letter of Philippians, he's like, I'm going to see you again. I might not see you again. I can't wait to be with you, but if I'm not going to be with you. That's, that's his mindset. He knows I can't force people to think the way God has called us to think. Only God can reveal these truth, truths. That takes time. And the encouragement here. At least live to the level that we each already know. All Christians know, at the very least, Jesus Christ has given himself for me, has died and risen for me, and he has called me to die and give myself for him. Every Christian knows that. In closing, in a little bit of application. What is holding you back from your pursuit of Jesus Christ with all of your heart and with all of your effort? What's holding you back? Again, even as that question is posed, we probably already know the answer. 
Do we not? Throw it behind you. It's not worth it. Or are you simply satisfied with yesterday's grace? True grace gives a hunger for more grace. Are you satisfied with yesterday's grace, complacent? Let me ask you this. If you were locked in a room, no cell phone, no internet, no nothing, could you sit down and think only of God and who he is for more than 25 minutes? Is what you know about God right now, is that all you want to know about God? There's peaks to ascend and hills to climb. If you've been on the same plateau of knowledge and of spiritual growth, then something's wrong. We must grow. If you want joy, we must grow. And if where we're at today is all we will ever be, it sucks. What are we saying about who Jesus Christ is? How about in your relationships? Is the display of grace in your marriage, is that all you want it to be? Well, my wife and I, sometimes we get, into, we get settled, function like roommates more than a picture of Christ in this church. When we get settled into that comfortable routine for a long time, sinfully complacent, is, is that display of grace in your marriage all you want it to be? about your witness in this world? Is that all you want it to be? Run, run, run. Whatever your situation is right now, do not give up. Jesus Christ has died for your sin, has risen from the grave, has ascended into heaven. He's with you right now. The victory is already ours. So work it out in your life. That's my closing exhortation as we think about Christian joy. Real joy is ultimately found only in the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ within the power of the Holy Spirit. Run, run, run. Let's pray. Father, all that you want us to be, that's what we want to be. All that Christ wants to give us, we want to have. All that you want us to do, we want to do. We want to take hold of that which we are laid hold of by your Son. Pray for Pillar Baptist Church that their elders, their pastors would be pure men Godly husbands, able to handle your word, keep them qualified. Pray for their families, that their families, their family life would be sweet. Pray for their children, that they would be saved. And pray for the church fellowship, that it would be united that petty differences would just be petty. That the people within the church would have a slave-like humility, not seeking to exalt themselves or only want to be heard, 
but that they might wash feet and even die for those people who don't deserve to be died for. We can't wait till you exalt the church. Until then, give us a fire in our chest, a pumping of our arms, a heart and a mind that knows a pursuit of your son is, is everything. And so teach us to number our days and take our eyes off of worthless things that you might be our ultimate end, that we might find the satisfaction that we are designed to find in you. Bless this church, God. Make them a lighthouse in the Silicon Valley. You would move and, and bring many people to come to know you through this church that they might have the joy of seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. We don't deserve any of these prayer requests, but we know you're a God of grace and of power. And would you demonstrate that grace and power so that the watching world can see and understand that this is your church. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.